Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. This week, a conversation with Rick Wartzman about his new book, Still Broke, Walmart's remarkable transformation and the limits of socially conscious capitalism. Given unparalleled access to Walmart executives, Wartzman traces the history of the Bentonville, Arkansas retail giant and its more recent efforts to transform itself. Wartzman uses this study of Walmart's relationship with its workers to raise larger questions about the nation's millions of minimum wage workers. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. We come here to honor a man who shows that through hard work and vision and treating people right, uh, many good things can happen. Uh, This visit is not about Sam Walton's wealth. He's earned his money, and that's his business. He's been generous with his fortune, and that is in the great tradition of America's commitment to this concept that I call a thousand points of light. It's not about money. Visit's not even about philanthropy. This visit is about what is fundamentally good and right about our country. And it's about determination, it's about leadership, it's about decency. That was President Bush 41 awarding the Presidential Medal of Freedom to Sam Walton, the, fa- Walton, the founder of Walmart. Rick Wartzman, your latest book, Still Broke, is about the evolution of the company that Sam Walton founded. Tell me about the project. Yeah, this was a, a project uh, about three years in the making. Um, pretty fast book for me, actually. I usually take longer, um, but super timely and uh, really wanted to get this one out there. Um, what I really wanted to do was take um, a look at um, Walmart's changes um, to its uh, labor policies, really its policies around how um, it invested in and, and treated its frontline workers, um, changes that have um, accelerated uh, since really 2015 when the company um, introduced the first um, across-the-board increase in its starting wage in its history since Sam Walton founded the company in 1962 followed the company for a long time, knew there were a lot of interesting things going on. They clearly really changed some practices in terms of how they treated their frontline workers. And I wanted to know um, what was going on, why they did it, and um, kind of what the results have been. So why Walmart? There's a lot of national attention on two other major retailers, Amazon and Starbucks these days. Why Walmart? Well, Walmart is still the biggest employer um, in the country by far. Um, there are about 1.7 million um, U.S. workers now. Um, so it actually uh, has a much bigger frontline workforce than uh, Amazon does or certainly than Starbucks does. Um, and totally get why there's attention around those other co- uh, companies. But Walmart remains uh, the biggest employer in the U.S. and the biggest company uh, in the United States. Can you supply a few other statistics besides the number of employees? Uh, how many stores does it have today? Uh, estimate of annual revenues, what its market capitalization is, and what the trend has been over the past 10 years? Yeah, the, you know, the company has about um, uh, 5,000 stores, I think, including its Sam's Club stores. 
Um, and I don't actually know its current market cap off the top of my head. But what has the trend been? Is it continuing to grow over the past uh, decade, even if there have been challenges in the larger marketplace? Yeah, the company has definitely continued um, to grow. First of all, it did extremely well um, during the pandemic. Um, you know, it, it saw uh, huge increases in sales. Um, it was a place a lot of people relied on. And although it, you know, lags in online sales compared to, to Amazon, it has done a lot to, you know, grow its, um, its online uh, business. So an important part of this project, and you alluded to this in your first answer, is really you. So tell me a little bit about the long coverage you've had of Walmart. Yeah, I have, I guess, had something of a, of a long, somewhat personal relationship with Walmart. So I was the business editor of the Los Angeles Times um, many years ago now, and um, I helped lead a team in, in that role uh, that won the Pulitzer Prize in 2004 for national reporting. Really, um, my colleagues, you know, took a really deep look at um, at Walmart and um, what we described as the high cost, really the high human cost in many ways of of low prices. Right. So we know that Sam Walton, and it was interesting hearing that first clip, you know, I don't disagree with anything that uh, that President Bush said about Sam Walton. Um, I think there's just more to the story than that. Um, but Sam Walton was a visionary, and he was able to bring, particularly to rural areas, um, smaller communities, um, stores that offered high quality goods, um, the kinds of goods that folks would often have to travel, you know, pretty far in the car to go to a you know a big department store to to find. Um, he brought them to their region, to their hometowns, and, um, you know, did it with, again, really low prices, prices that, that they could afford. Um, and it was an incredible model, um, incredible, incredible growth, incredible uh, success. Um, but as our L.A. Times story showed, particularly over the years as the company grew, uh, there were costs to that. Um, you know, part of that low price formula was holding down wages for their frontline workers. Um, they also, you know, squeezed suppliers and, um, you know, made it really, uh, uh, you know, they were tough to bargain with. They often uh, drove manufacturing overseas. Um, so there were a lot of costs as well, um, kind of social costs and human costs that came with those low prices. Staying with you, uh, you also tell readers that in recent years you've been associated with the Drucker Institute. Uh, what yeah. does it do? Yeah, so uh, for the past 15 years, I've been at the Drucker Institute. We're a nonprofit social enterprise based at Claremont Graduate University, so just outside Los Angeles. And um, we do a number of, of things. Um, one of the efforts I've been leading um, in recent years um, has been a, uh, around a lifelong learning initiative, a lifelong learning platform. It's a digital platform um, called Bendable. Um, it's available through U.S. public libraries. Um, and it's a way for people to um, discover and access um, the online classes and other learning opportunities they, they need, both to thrive at work and, and outside of work. Um, and interestingly, um, especially given my background um, from the LA Times and in my uh, last book before this one, The End of Loyalty, um, I had some you know not so nice things to say about Walmart and its, and its business model. And um, much to my surprise, Walmart ended up um, helping provide some of the, the seed funding um, that got this lifelong learning project off the ground. 
So you acknowledge that some people will be a bit skeptical since you've received money from the Walmart Foundation about their, their treatment in the book. What's your response to that? Yeah, look, I you know I'm not naive. I, I was I was actually pretty surprised. I had been giving um, some talks, some book talks um, about the end of loyalty, and um, I uh, had been approached by a couple of folks from Walmart, um, from the corporate foundation, who had heard me speak. Part of what I was talking about um, during my talk was how um, uh, workers used to get a lot of uh, on-the-job skills training, particularly frontline workers. And that that part of the corporate social contract, if you will, had kind of unraveled along with many other things, job security, pay, health benefits, retirement security and so on. Um, Training, you know, investments were not what they once were, uh, you know, 40, 50 years ago, again, particularly for frontline workers. Walmart has taken a real interest in this topic and they've done a lot to invest in training. Um, They heard me speak. They found out what I was working on at the Drucker Institute. And they, along with Google, actually became one of our first philanthropic funders to get the project off the ground. So when you, I could... was really surprised. I was really <laughs> surprised, given my history. They clearly knew who I was. But just to answer your question, I would say, you know, look, it gave me a new kind of window into Walmart. I got to meet lots of people, um, and it actually kind of stirred my interest in doing this current book. Um, what I told them was, hey, I need access if I'm going to tell this story. I do think you've done a bunch of things to change the way you treat your frontline workers. I, I'm not sure you've gotten your due. I want to tell that story. I'm also not going to pull any punches. I'm going to talk to all your critics. I'm actually friends with many of the kind of labor activists who, um, uh, you know, who, who go after you all the time. I'm going to talk to them as well. And I'm going to come to what I think is, you know, a true portrait of, of where you are and why you've done what you've done. Why do you think they said yes? I'm really persuasive, I guess. I, <laughs> I'm not, I, you know, I think they said yes because they really do believe they have a good story to tell. And in many ways, it really is a good story to tell in the context of, of Walmart's own history, in the context of being a, uh, in the retail business, um, you know, where there are typically, you know, very low paid workers. Um, they have done quite a bit to make new investments in that workforce. Um, to try and give people more opportunity. Um, they're sincere about it. They've worked hard at it. Um, and I think they, you know, felt like they had a good story to tell. And in many ways they do. And in many ways, as the book says, and the title says, they fall short. Let's go back to the uh, Walmart origin story with Sam Walton and put a little more color to it. When and why did he start the company? Yeah, Sam Walton had always had just a, a nose for retail Um he was he just had this incredible knack for understanding what people wanted to buy um you know there's some great stories of of him um you know kind of pulling out whatever it was you know sort of a pair of sandals and knowing they would be the hottest thing in town and uh, buying loads of them and piling up on piling them up on the you know sort of uh, display table and some of his workers thought he was nuts these things will never sell and they became the hot item around um so he just he had a real knack for it. Um, he uh, clearly had this vision again of of bringing low priced, high quality goods to uh, parts of America that didn't have um, outlets that would provide those things, and saw an opportunity there that few others did. Um, others questioned whether they would have the population base and the income to be able to support any kind of retail. 
and he obviously proved them wrong on that. Um, and he was just he was a he was a visionary. He was a relentless worker. Um, he loved to go to rivals' stores and see what was working there. Literally, sometimes getting down on his hands and knees and opening up the little cabinets to see what was in their inventory. Uh, you know, underneath the you know cash register, those kinds of things. And um, and would really uh, kind of take the best ideas from elsewhere, make them his own, and and deploy them at Walmart. You also write that he was an innovator. We have him to thank for self-service shopping with shopping carts. Yep, yep, right. It used to be, you know, right, you would go around and um, there would be kind of counter after counter, more, more the way maybe a, you know, traditional department store, right? If you go into Macy's and there's someone at the perfume counter and then, right, someone, um, you know, at a different counter to help you with some other kinds of items. And uh, it was full of people and kind of specialists at each counter, and uh, he changed that model um, and, you know, had people go around and do this kind of, quote unquote, self-service. I mean, we just think of it as shopping now, but right, you'd grab a, a, a cart and go around and, and uh, pull your own things off the shelf. It was a great way to actually save on labor um, and uh, kind of helped revolutionize retail. You uh, described the 1970s as Walmart's miracle decade. How so? They just started to grow uh, like crazy. Um, and uh, it was a time, of course, when uh, for those um, you know, who are old enough to remember, uh, the country was really hit hard um, by this double whammy of uh, you know, both high unemployment and high inflation, way, way worse than what we're having now for those who uh, you know, worry about inflation and, and rightly do so today. Um, inflation was really soaring. Uh, unemployment was really, you know, was really storing, soaring um, this phenomenon called stagflation. And retail really suffered by and large. Business really suffered. Um, but uh, Sam Walton's model, because of the low prices, because of uh, the locations he was in, proved to be, uh, you know, counter cyclical. And Walmart was able to grow uh, when others were really struggling. In 1971, Sam Walton put into place a profit-sharing plan. How important was that to the company culture? What did it mean for employees? It, it was a, it was huge. Um, so Sam Walton, you know, always paid, and retail always paid, but Sam Walton in particular always kept his wages for his hourly workers down as low as possible. And this was a huge part of the formula for having low prices for his customers. And, um, you know, he, he himself acknowledged in his uh, autobiography that he could be uh, chintzy was his word uh, with his with his frontline workers. But he did offer profit sharing um, and particularly for early employees. The company was relatively you know small then it didn't have, uh, you know, a million plus workers or nearly two million workers um, in the U.S. It, it was much, much smaller. And so, you know like a lot of companies, if you kind of got in early and it was a stock that was growing well, um, you could, uh, you know, invest your money in Walmart stock um, as part of this profit sharing plan. And, and people did did quite well. There was also just a straight cash um, profit formula that um, allowed you to share in, in profit. And it, it made the wages for people um, who otherwise would have really been struggling more tolerable it also really gave them a kind of an ownership mentality in the business. So it was definitely helpful. How important is Bentonville, Arkansas to Walmart's culture? Um, 
you know, I think it's quite important. Uh, you know, it's look, we've seen lots of companies move corporate headquarters um, over the years. Right. And, uh, you know, Boeing. Right. You know, which seemed to have such deep roots in, in a place like Seattle and then is no longer there. I really can't imagine Walmart not being in Bentonville. Um, again, it, it's it's so much in its DNA, this smaller you know, town ethos that that was really what Sam Walton was all about. Um, and really a succession of CEOs have have been all about. They've they've I think to a person have had more of a rural background, more of a small town America heartland background. And it's it's very woven into their DNA. By the time Sam Walton retired, end of the 1980s, you report that uh, Walmart had 1,400 stores, 120 Sam's Clubs, which are the membership clubs, and 275,000 employees. Next two CEOs were David Glass, who served for 12 years, Lee Scott, who was an insider since the early days, accelerated the growth. But you also tell us that along with accelerated growth came lots of criticism. What were the major critiques of Walmart? Yeah. So, right. All of those companies, just all those CEOs kind of kept their their um, their foot on the on the company's gas pedal. And uh, the growth just, you know, continued and continued and continued until Walmart was by revenue, uh, the biggest company in America. Um, it would eventually, you know, by number of employee, employees be the biggest company in America. Um, there are lots of reasons, uh, you know, as the giant. And I think, again, even though Walmart is bigger, Amazon is feeling you know, some of this um, uh, where, uh, you know, folks start to look at what was once a kind of the American dream story, a success story, and they start to look at it more with a critical eye. Um, I, I think we have, a, as a society, love to do that, right? We, you know, we kind of build something up and then we love to, to tear it down. Um, so I think that's part of what was going on was just the sheer size of Walmart. Um, you know, folks were, were looking at it in a different light and uh, and coming after it. And, and there's always been this idea in, in uh, what we call the curse of bigness in business, right, that, that companies that get too big have too much power, um, an inordinate amount of power. And so folks were looking at them differently. Um, but things also changed after Sam Walton, you know, passed away. Um, and, and I, you know, don't want to over mythologize when he was there. But the bigger, you know, Walmart got, the harder it was to have this sort of, um, you know, small town feel for its employees. Um, suddenly, you know, there are thousands and thousands of stores to manage. Um, you know, it used to be Sam Walton really knew his employees' names and would drop in all the time and see them and really knew them. Doug McMillan still travels the stores to this day, the current CEO. But it's obviously really different when you have, you know, over a million and a half frontline workers. You just can't know folks the way you did. And so workers started to feel like they were being treated differently. Um, in time, the profit sharing also disappeared. And so kind of the special things about Walmart, its camaraderie, this feeling of, you know, this, this charismatic character, Sam Walton, who would go around and make them feel like part of the Walmart family, that was gone. Profit sharing was gone. And the things that were left were just low wages and an increasingly just kind of big in some ways, maybe bureaucratic place to work. Um, and folks were really struggling just on those wages. Um, you know, they had a really hard time keeping up. And so there was a lot of criticism and a lot of criticism from organized labor, from unions, about how workers were being treated. There was also a lot of criticism about Walmart crowding out mom and pop local businesses in communities. Um, and we can get into that, whether that's 
you know how much there is to that or not is to that but that was definitely the perception that that Walmart was driving uh, main street businesses out and and then certainly if you know you can argue about what the economics of that look like well that's good for a community or not and they're mixed economic studies on all of that it certainly changes the aesthetic of local communities um, and Walmart's not the only big box retailer to do that but Right. We know that that local communities have changed their character in many ways over the years as the Walmarts of the world have moved in. And then there was this notion of, again, kind of pushing hard on their suppliers and pushing so hard that many were forced to move operations overseas so that they could keep their own labor costs down um, and supply Walmart with cheaper goods. At what point in Walmart's trajectory did Amazon become a real competitive force and what impact did it have on Walmart operations? Yeah, I mean, as as Amazon has you know has grown over the years, um, and it was certainly you know on Lee Scott's radar before Doug McMillan became CEO in 2014. You know, as Amazon grew and grew, um, you know, Walmart certainly was paying attention. First of all, I would say Walmart, like any smart company, successful company, pays attention to all its competitors. But by the time Doug McMillan came in uh, in 2014 as CEO, um, he definitely felt like Walmart wasn't paying enough attention to uh, to Amazon. And in fact, he had his entire executive team um, read uh, this book by Brad Stone, The Everything Store, about Jeff Bezos and, and Amazon and uh, really wanted to focus their attention. I, I think it's fair to say that um, you know, Amazon hangs over, you know, Walmart and probably, you know, many of the, if not most of the business decisions that it makes. It's in the context of these two giants slugging it out. So let's go back to the Lee Scott CEO period. Uh, he came in about what time? Do you know when he started? Uh, he was- yeah, Lee Scott, I, I'm trying to remember the year he started. I think, you know, the big moment for him and for uh, and for Walmart was really Hurricane Katrina uh, in 2005. And, um, you know, that's a that's a moment in the company's history. It's, it's been a bit mythologized, um, as many of these corporate stories can be inside. Um, but there's a lot of truth to it. Um, some of your uh, your viewers may remember that after the devastation of Hurricane Katrina, Walmart really did some incredible things. It used its size. It used its logistics network. It's used its ability to get move goods around um, to go into uh, the devastated areas, um, particularly around New Orleans and where the federal government, FEMA, the, the Federal Emergency Management Administration, couldn't get goods in and, and were really stymied. Walmart was able to deliver food and water and other crucial supplies, medicines and other things. And um, really, Walmart became, you know, a hero in in that narrative. And um, Lee Scott seized on that and said, hey, there's something here. You know, we can we can use Walmart's size to do good in the world. Um, What if we tried to do that every day? You say that Lee Scott uh, then prepared for a very large uh, corporate framing speech in October of 2005, kind of resetting the narrative about Walmart. What were his messages? Yeah, it was really that that key question, right? We've been criticized for, for our bigness, for our size, um, for all the reasons that, that we just talked about. And he said, suppose we could turn that on its head. Hurricane Katrina was a moment that, you know, I'm extremely proud of as CEO. I know you all are proud of. 
Um, we were able to help these devastated communities. How could we use our size, suppose we used our size, our scale every day to make the world better? And we turn this idea of, of bigness around. And um, he called for, first of all, and he was already moving down this track as the CEO, Walmart using its size to uh, help um, uh, with the environment and sustainability to make the company more uh, sustainable, to change its environmental practices, to cut its carbon footprint, um, to do other things that would uh, would help make Walmart a greener company. Um, and that was a place that uh, he, he spoke a lot about in the speech and, again, was already kind of on that trajectory um, early on with the company and, and wanted to accelerate those efforts. He did talk a little bit about um, wages. He talked about health care, providing uh, lower uh, health premiums uh, to its workers. Um, so uh, having you know more affordable health coverage for its workers. And he did talk about wages, but more the need to look at um, the federal minimum wage and, uh, and, and look, take a look at that um, and see if that should, should move upward. Um, but really the, the main focus was uh, around environmental policy at that time. At the same time that, that Lee Scott was reframing or hoped to reframe Walmart, labor unions were ramping up their efforts. Yeah. So which labor unions were involved and what kind of campaigns did they wage? Yeah, there were there were two unions um, that really took on Walmart and they're, they're fascinating campaigns. Um, so one was um, uh, the Service Employees um, International Union, the SEIU, um, then led by Andy Stern and the, the Food and Commercial Workers Union, um, then led by Joe Hansen. And um, two, you know, giant unions. Um, in the case of the food and commercial workers, they really hoped to organize Walmart, and they had for years been trying unsuccessfully to organize Walmart. And that is just to be super clear: they wanted, uh, much like is going on at Starbucks now and, and Amazon now, they were trying to um, have workers, uh, you know sign a union card and then represent those workers um, through collective bargaining in contract talks with the, you know, with Walmart. That was their their hope and vision and what they were trying to achieve. Um, the service employees union, a little bit different. They, you know, wouldn't represent Walmart workers, but Andy Stern um, saw Walmart because of its size um, as kind of the, the way to say corporate America is broken. Corporate America is doing all kinds of things that harm uh, working folks, and their their wages are inadequate. Um, the their health care coverage is inadequate. Um, they are uh, really, you know, uh, oppressing uh, working folks. And he saw Walmart as as kind of a target and and went after them. And so both both unions kind of launched these giant campaigns simultaneously, um, and really they were among the first giant campaigns that looked at a corporation like a political candidate. And they they really tried to tear Walmart down in the public eye. So uh, you have quote Lee Scott in your book saying that the union's barrage was, quote, one of the most sophisticated, expensive corporate campaigns ever waged. How did Walmart respond? Yeah. So facts, you know, definitely um, on that. And uh yeah, just just incredible. So um, Walmart Watch was the um, service employees union uh, campaign uh, and Wake Up Walmart was the food and commercial workers campaign. Um, they were incredibly creative. They ran ads. 
Um, they, you know, recruited uh, people online, much like, you know, voters get recruited online to back a candidate um, to, you know, again, to go after Walmart in, in different ways. Um, the uh, Food and Commercial Workers Union um, launched this big bus tour um, where they went across the country and, and almost, you know, held political style rallies often with politicians, um, like minded politicians um, you know, showing up to make speeches and, and condemn Walmart, um, really all kinds of creative, you know, things that they did to, to keep Walmart in the public eye and, and, and give it a black eye. And, uh, the company responded, you know, I think for a while, they just tried to keep their heads down and, and, and hope it would go away. Um, it didn't. Um, and so they began their own sort of counter campaign, and um, they hired uh, a gentleman from Edelman, the public relations firm, um, who had been working with the company to come inside and kind of lead a counteroffensive, uh, a gentleman by the name of Leslie Dock. Also working with, this was an interesting name, Mike Deaver, who uh, people in the audience will remember yeah. as the communications guru during the Reagan years. So what kind of response did they come up with to the union's efforts? Yeah, so they created a kind of a war room. They came up with their own counter messaging, their own counter ad campaigns to say, look at all the good that Walmart does in the world. This is how Walmart saves consumers money. Um, you know, that's a form of freedom. Uh, they 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 really ran their own counter counter campaign. So it really became almost like a, you know, a political campaign with with folks on on two sides. Was there any movement on compensation, which was one of the goals of the unions? No, not really. Um, you know, Walmart, look, has always raised wages over the years. Obviously, wages are higher than when Sam Walton was there. But that's because, you know, the market has bid up wages over time and, um, you know, to keep up with the cost of living and other things. And in many cases, even though uh, the federal minimum wage hasn't been raised, you know, in, in an awfully long time, um, you have uh, state and, and local minimum wage ordinances that have, you know, forced Walmart in particular markets to, to raise its wages. So it's not like wages have stayed completely flat. They're obviously higher. But no, Walmart never, you know, raised wages, you know, as it would eventually do uh, in, in 2015. So, you know, during this whole time, uh, wages were not, were not raised. Did uh, it ever come to a vote, the organizing efforts? Did they manage to successfully coalesce anywhere? No, not not really. Um, Walmart has always um, been able to beat back organized labor. In fact, a lot of the tactics that you see now, um, you know, some legal, some uh, I suspect will be deemed illegal that, you know, places like Amazon and, and Starbucks uh, companies are, are doing to to hold down unionization efforts. Um, Walmart really wrote the playbook on all those things. So there's never really been a substantial threat to, to unionize Walmart, despite great efforts by the food and commercial workers and, and some others, but particularly the food and commercial workers over a long period of time. They could never, they could never get in. There was one uh, store where a few meat cutters um, in Texas organized and uh, Walmart quickly um, found a way to to you know make that go away and so no well, there's really never been a union threat uh, you, at 
Walmart. You report that the data at the time showed that the majority of employees were pretty happy with Walmart. And, and you note that when you did research for your book, you found much, or in later years, found much the same thing. So how do you reconcile that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things going on. So first of all, you know, what, what I say and what, what others have found is that it's, it's a mixed bag. And so I think it is important to note that there are many, many workers who are happy with their jobs at Walmart, are satisfied with, you know, the living that they make. And, um, and, and you know, many have been there for, for a long time. But it's also true that like many retailers and particularly, you know, this is this has gone down some, but particularly before Doug McMillan came in as CEO, turnover was incredibly high, really a sign that you know, people are not happy. They're leaving in droves and very quickly uh, turning out the door. Um, and, you know, many are many workers are struggling and um, and and really just trying to make ends meet and can't make ends meet on a on a Walmart wage. And so um, it is really a mixed bag when you have, you know, more than one and a half million frontline workers. As I say in the book, you know, when people say are Walmart workers happy, you know, it's like I don't know, plunging into right a city with a million and a half people and saying, do you like to live here? Well, who are you talking to? What neighborhood are they in? Right. Well, I mean, it's it's so many people that, yeah, you find folks who are satisfied and you find folks who are really not satisfied. And many of those who are not satisfied are not there very long even to be surveyed. They're out the door. One of the um, seemingly unusual outcomes of Andy Stern and the SEIU was an announcement by Andy Stern in 2007. We've got a, a bit of video on this. Let's watch. Today I stood on the stage with leaders of American business, civic organizations, a former senator, to say it's time for every American to have quality, affordable health care. I stood with Lee Scott, the CEO of Walmart, a moment I never would have expected would have happened in my life, along with business leaders from Intel and Kelly Service and AT&T, and another union leader from CWA. We stood together for a very simple reason. We share a common value and belief that by 2012, every man, woman, and child in America needs to have quality, affordable health care. And the fact that we are such a diverse group of people, representing so many different points of view, and at times people who just have not agreed, the fact that we come together, I think, is the power of our new coalition. Seems like strange bedfellows, SEIU and Walmart. What, what happened? Yeah, strange is an understatement, right? So um, as Walmart began to you know, make these changes um, around the environment and environmental practices, um, one of the things that Lee Scott was really good at was actually listening to his critics and being open to at least have some kind of, of dialogue. And he certainly did it on the environment. The company brought in, you know, the Environmental Defense Fund and, uh, you know, other environmental organizations, um, Conservation International and others that, um, you know, normally would have had nothing to do with Walmart in the past. But he created channels that he could you know, have dialogue with them, listen to them, and it led to many changes in Walmart's environmental practices. Um, and Walmart is seen to this day, and they're far from perfect, and I detail this in the book, but they are seen as an environmental leader, certainly among retailers and really among most 
you know, large companies um, leading the way um, in terms of sustainability, um, at least as far as the corporate community will go on on those kinds of issues. And again, it all started under Lee Scott, and it started with him listening to to critics. Um, they started to listen to some others as well, even on employment practices, although Lee Scott, again, didn't raise wages and, and nothing much really changed. He began to listen to um, some some folks who, um, again, normally wouldn't have been in, in kind of Walmart's orbit, um, even around um, uh, labor practices. One of the groups that Lee Scott had an open dialogue with um, uh, was uh, the Interfaith Community. Uh, Committee for Corporate Interfaith Center for Corporate Responsibility on Corporate Responsibility, um, uh, a group of you know uh, religious orders and and others, um, you know. So this is sort of the the you know some of the nuns who would show up and get in Lee Scott's ear about the way Walmart was treating workers, and he would he would engage in that dialogue. Um, he also um, through some back channel connections began a dialogue around healthcare, which was really healthcare costs were really hurting Walmart. Um, he began kind of a, a backdoor dialogue with Andy Stern and the, the service employees union on health care. What I detail in the book is those talks ended up actually extending into some other areas, um, including wages and other labor practices. Um, really fascinating kind of backdoor negotiations. Um, those didn't end up going anywhere, but on health care, Walmart and uh, the service employees union and some others, as, as the clip showed, um, were able to come together, and effectively they called for universal health care coverage, um, and Walmart ended up being one of the few companies, to large companies, to back uh, an employer mandate uh, to make sure that folks were insured. Just a little over 20 minutes left in our conversation with Rick Wurtzman. His book is Still Broke, Walmart's Remarkable Transformation and the Limits of Socially Conscious Capitalism. So when they were endorsing health care, I wanted to use that as a point to ask you about Walmart's relationship with national politicians. So uh, did they have vocal critics, vocal supporters on the national scene? Uh, both, I would, you know, I would say. Um, certainly lots of, you know, critics over the years, particularly, not surprisingly, on the Democratic side of the aisle. Um, and uh, again, really, I think largely over time around um, wage policy. Um, you know, Walmart was again up until uh, you know 2015 when it raised wages and and again my book is really a story of how and why it came to do that and and what it says um, you know Walmart uh, you know before that was paying uh, the average starting wage in before it made this change was seven dollars and sixty five cents an hour that was the average starting wage uh, the minimum wage. You know, federal minimum wage is still seven twenty-five an hour, so they were barely over uh, minimum wage, and um, you know, lots of criticism. When when you pay that little, you end up with workers on Medicaid and food stamps and other forms of public assistance, and uh, you know, that feels wrong to a lot of people, um, including me, and uh, and they've certainly been criticized uh, for that. Um, by, by many folks on the Democratic side of the aisle. So it, would it be fair to say that if employees of any large company have to use Medicaid um, and um, food stamps, that in fact the larger public is subsidizing the low wages of these corporations? I, I think that is a fair statement for sure. 
Uh, let me play one clip. I wanted to ask you, we're staying on the uh, national political scene because they got involved in the health care debate. Uh, but uh, this was a um, dynamic of the Clinton administration. But at the same time, the Clintons uh, were Arkansas-based and, and Walmart was the largest employer in their state. So uh, what was the relationship between the Clintons and Walmart? Well, Hillary Clinton served on Walmart's board. Um, and it, I mean, super interesting um, by all accounts. And I, I did not interview her. Um, my book isn't focused on that period, but um, by everything that you know, I've I've read and and folks who knew her, who I did talk to, and and her role there, you know, she she did push Walmart on environmental policy. She was able to push them on you know gender equity and 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 other things, um, having more you know women in executive roles, um, and and she made change where she could. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, as a presidential candidate, she ran away from Walmart and, and really said, you know, this isn't a company that stands for anything that I currently stand for. Just to demonstrate that the criticism continues in, in more recent times, we have a clip of Bernie Sanders. Uh, this is from 2019. By the Walton family, which is the wealthiest family in America, worth about $175 billion. One might think that a family worth $175 billion would be able to pay its employees a living wage. And yet, as you all know, the starting wage at Walmart now is $11 an hour. And people cannot make it on $11 an hour. You can't pay rent. You can't get health care. You can't feed your kids. We'll put gas in the car on $11 an hour. Rick Wartsman, did Walmart executives find themselves uh, on in Capitol Hill testifying about any of this over the years? Uh, they've certainly, you know, talked about the minimum wage and Doug McMillan has said that the federal minimum wage should go up. He's talked about $15 an hour as a standard, as a, as a more appropriate standard. But as then, you know, we'll add the caveat that we need to be careful about raising it too much for small business. And maybe there should be geographical differences that, um, you know, $15 an hour is, you know, about $30,000 a year for a full-time 40-hour-a-week hourly worker. You know, I don't know anywhere in the country where thirty thousand dollars a year is is, you know, a, a lot of money or or really even a living wage. So, um, you know, I have a very different view of that. Um, but yeah, they have you know they have certainly talked about the need for the federal minimum wage to move to move higher. Um, I think what's really interesting about what Bernie Sanders was saying is this is in twenty nineteen, right? So this is after Walmart had already made a lot of change. And again, the, the story that I tell is really centered on how, you know, when Doug McMillan came in as CEO in 2014, he and his team knew that things were broken um, in terms of uh, the pay for its hourly workers. And there were lots of problems because pay had just been held down for so long. As I said, turnover was just rampant, right? Super high. Um, you know, there's a story of, of one of uh, Doug's senior executives going into a store, uh, you know, somewhere in the South and, uh, the manager telling her that turnover was 400%. Um, 
you know, so, you know, every person you're looking at, you know, there's, you know, four people in that job over the course of a year. It's just in, in one in one job. Um, so turnover was was running rampant. Um, you know, others told me across the board it was as high as 200 percent. Retail has high turnover, but not that high. So low pay, you know, and, and not great working conditions were really um, causing problems for Walmart from a public relations standpoint, from a, you know, but also just from a business standpoint. Um, and, uh, and so after this decade of pressure from the unions, from other labor activists, there was an organization that spun out of the food and commercial workers called Our Walmart, now United for Respect. Really has kept a lot of pressure on the on the company and and uh, pushed them to raise wages. The interfaith community, um, as I as I described, um, keeping pressure on um, politicians like Bernie Sanders. Uh, you know, all of this happened, and so Walmart finally did go in and, and raise wages. And again, lots of it because of business reasons. Their sales were flagging. Turnover was so high. Customer service was suffering. Customers were were not shopping as much at Walmart. Same sort store sales were on the decline. Doug McMillan knew he had to do something to fix things. He had to invest in his workers as never before. And Walmart did. And so in 2015, um, they began this two-step wage increase. So their starting pay went from, as I said, an average of $7.65 an hour to $9 and then to $10 in this kind of two-step process. They also invested more in training. They tried to improve scheduling for their workers. And today, under Doug's leadership, they have more full-time employees and fewer part-time employees than they did. That's good for people, more hours, more stability. All of that is to the good. But what Bernie Sanders is really pointing to, and he's not wrong, is that even after all of those things, and, and I think their, their hearts are in the right place, their minds are in the right place, they've made this turn. Walmart is investing as never before in its people. Um, it's still lacking. It's still broke. The system's still broke. People are still broke. They're still not making enough. Even after all of the investments, the average Walmart worker is still making less than $29,000 a year. And again, to, to me, that is not a living wage, and it really doesn't matter where you live. Let's uh, hear from Doug McMillan, get his voice and perspective on the record here. This is uh, June of 2012, which is before he took over as CEO, but he had been with the company for a long time and it was then president and CEO of, C of Walmart International. Let's listen. Walmart went through a transition a few years ago. Um, we believed in the very beginning, as you would expect, that customers and associates were two key stakeholders. Did we care about shareholders? Sure, any business cares about shareholders, but we, our philosophy was if you focus on associates and they're happy and they do a good job and they have opportunities, they'll take good care of customers and if customers are happy, your business grows. Sounds pretty simple. But when we became big, whenever that was, we didn't always get the memo on the moment that that occurred, but when we became big, societal expectations were higher than, than what I just described. So we needed help, so starting to listen more um, to people like Dr. Gale and others to say, you need to think differently about the environment, you need to think differently about social issues, has led us to a point where we are today. We're still maturing, but, but we're, we have a different point of view yeah. and perspective than we have before. Rick Wartsman, that 2015 board meeting where they approved the first ever across-the-board pay raise for their workers, how did Wall Street respond? 
<laughs> not not well. I mean, and and this really shows the pressure that companies, you know, corporate America is under. And remember, this is a company where you know the Walton family owns, you know, uh, half or you know about half of the shares. And so in some ways, Walmart probably has more latitude, assuming the Waltons are on board, and they were in this case, to raise pay than other companies, which, you know, don't have a such a giant shareholder. Um, uh, and, and those companies may be under even more pressure than, than Walmart was. But yeah, they, they raised, they raised pay. Um, and uh, Walmart actually took some months for kind of the full story of what the, the cost of that or the investment, you know, what, what it would, what the investment amount would be and and what that would do over a period of time to earnings, how that would tamp down the company's profits for a while um, until they saw a return on that investment. And and again, it takes some time. Turnover goes down. Your your workers, uh, you know, leave more satisfied customers because uh, they know what they're doing better because they're not out the door because they're getting paid more. And you know, all of those things ultimately can lead to growth, higher sales, higher profits. But it takes time. And when Wall Street, you know, heard about the the size of the investment, um, it it clobbered the stock, and um, you know, Walmart, you know, saw a lot of market cap go poof in in one day. So let's get we have about ten minutes left. Get, let's get to the conclusions that you drew from all of this work and research on Walmart and the overall retail uh, sector in the United States, uh, their competitors, et cetera. You write that. Uh, your role, your view of the role of government changed during your two-year Walmart project. How so? Yeah, so I've always been a, a you know, what I'd call a both-end person on, on this issue, which is to say, um, you know, we need, you know, companies to treat their workers well, to, to pay a living wage, um, to, you know, to to really be the primary actors had been my view and to, and to make change. Um, and that the government, you know, provided a safety net, set basic guardrails, and, and that was its role. Um, but it was really the corporate sector, which I thought really needed to, to kind of take the lead in solving kind of these big societal issues. And I, and I look at, and I call it a wage crisis that, that we have in America, um, you know, that, that it was up to corporate America to turn that around. And, and what, you know, my peek into Walmart really showed me was that this is a company that has really made a, a, a good faith effort in, in its own context and has and has done a lot. Um, but again, at the end of the day, the average Walmart worker um, is still making less than twenty nine thousand dollars a year. That is not a living wage. And what it showed me is that corporate America left on its own will never move far enough or fast enough to reverse this wage crisis that uh, that we have in this country just with so many working people getting up, working hard, uh, and not being able to make ends meet. And that what we really need is a government-mandated living wage. And I call for $20 an hour in the book, and we can talk about why that is. Um, let, let me give you two numbers just to kind of illustrate what I'm saying. So um, Walmart, from 2015, when they made this first wage increase, up through the end of last year, they had invested about 5 to $6 billion dollars um, billion with a B, uh, in higher wages, better benefits, worker training, um, you know, better scheduling, more full-time workers, and so on in its workforce. Really, that's a big investment. It's serious money, and and it and it speaks to, you know, this is this is real. Walmart's transformation is remarkable and real, and and I I applaud them for that. At the same time, 
you compare that five to six billion dollars to they bought back 43 billion dollars worth of their stock over that same period. Stock buybacks are really a reward to shareholders. And so, you know, companies like Walmart can talk about stakeholder capitalism and moving away from a model of shareholder primacy, putting shareholders first. But if you follow the money, shareholders are still put first. And, you know, I just don't think companies are ever going to move far enough, fast enough on, on their own to to fix this wage crisis that Walmart and many other companies have you know, put our society in over the last 50 years. Right now, uh, amongst uh, American public, inflation is the single number one worry uh, yeah. for individuals. Is not what you're suggesting inflationary? Well, it look, it it could be um, in in the sense that I know people worry about a wage price spiral spiral. But right now, wages are not keeping up with prices, um, and so you know. Again, we have a crisis, and, and I think we really need to see it as a crisis. There are somewhere between, you know, by all the studies, by my own research, 25 to 40 percent of the U.S. labor force. So you're talking 40 to 65 million working people who get up, go to work every day, and then, you know, not every week, not necessarily every month, but really struggle to make ends meet. And for that population, it is not untypical to have to make really terrible trade-offs between, you know, one thing goes wrong in your life, a broken carburetor, you know, a kid home from school and you don't have childcare that you can afford and then you can't show up for work and you're suddenly in a crisis. It is not uncommon for that group to have to make trade-offs between food and medicine and rent. That's terrible. I, I think, you know, we can all see what it's done to our society, you know, politically, socially, it's, it is tearing at the fabric of our society. Those of us who are, who are privileged and, and, and fortunate enough to not struggle in those ways, we rely on this army of low-paid workers to provide services for us, to often take care of us when we're sick, uh, to take care of our kids, uh, to, you know, to serve us in so many ways. And we're not, you know, companies aren't paying them enough to, to live on. Um, I, I think we need to really fix that problem. $20 an hour may sound radical, um, but I think what is what is radical is that is that we live in a country where tens of millions of people live that way. Let me go back to your subtitle again, Walmart's Remarkable Transformation, which you spent a lot of time detailing the many changes that they made to the, the company and its overall relationship with its workers and with the public. And the second half of your subtitle, The Limits of Socially Conscious Capitalism. So how did Walmart respond when they heard your book and heard the argument that you think they should lead the way in this $20 an hour wage increase? Yeah. So one, again, I, I would love to see them lead the way. I think as the market leader, they could um, they could do a lot uh, by raising, continuing to raise wages more aggressively. And I think they should. And I and I think they can afford to do so. Um, the you know, but again, the the kind of full throated cry at the end of the book is for a government mandated living wage. Um, I think that you know companies across the board need to pay this. I do say, look, smaller businesses, maybe there needs to be a phase in. You know, there can be well designed ways to to do this kind of public policy. I don't I don't have any problem with a sub minimum wage for teenage workers getting their first work experience, that kind of thing. But we really need a living wage in, in this country. Um, you know, Walmart does not like the title. I, I know that um, uh, of, of the book. Uh, 
Um, but I told them going in, look, I was going to call it as I as I see it. Um, I, I do think, you know, the book is not a screed. It's not an anti-Walmart book. Um, it is it is nuanced. Uh, it really takes a look at all the good that they've done and, and applauds them for it. And at the end of the day, it says it falls short and our system falls short. And we need to fix those things. What is the political viability of your proposal? In the current environment, zero, right? I mean, we know Washington can't can't get things done. Um, there have been calls to raise the minimum wage not to nearly $20 an hour on the table for a long time, right? We've been stuck since 2009 at $7.25 an hour uh, in terms of the federal minimum wage. And so, uh, you know, not, not terribly realistic, but I also don't think it's realistic to expect corporate America to fix this. Um, I think it's up to us to elect people who uh, will, you know, represent uh, the interests of, of, you know, ourselves, but, you know, society and take care of, of working people who, again, give us so much, work so hard. And, you know, to me, it is it is really a travesty uh, when in the richest nation on earth, you have people who get up, go to work and uh, and have to make those painful choices that I described. Um, something's broken. Once again, the book title still broke. Walmart's Remarkable Transformation and the Limits of Socially Conscious Capitalism. Rick Wartsman, thank you so much for spending an hour with C-SPAN. Thank you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.